Creature Cast, a darkly tinted look at the magical, the mysterious, and the macabre. You're listening to CreatureCast, the darkly tinted look at the magical, the mysterious, and the macabre, and we are coming to you kind of live, semi-live, in that I am live right now, and I am recording this from StokerCon, the World Horror, or the Horror Writers Association's annual uh, gala event, slash award banquet, slash ceremony, slash whatever, and this year, I'm actually, so I had the good sense this time around to bring all my recording equipment, so I can interview a lot of the really cool horror creators that are out there, and the first one that I got to, uh have access to, fortunately because we're uh, roommates, is my old uh, college professor and academic advisor for my MFA, Mr. Tim Wagner. Tim, how's it going? It's going great. Right on. So, um, I want, like, this is a rare chance, usually I don't do interviews because, like, I kind of tend to think of this in terms of a, uh, just sort of a a discussion slash um, kind of commentary show, but every now and again, like, this is a real cool chance to get to interact with people who have really thought long and hard on the genre and sort of and they're creators they're they're people who are contributing they're like they're they're adding to the genre so uh i have a couple of questions that i've stolen from better podcasts chief among which is the uh, another round one with heaven and tracy so the first question that is that i have is uh professor wagner who are you and what do you do well who am i i'm a 52 year old guy from ohio um father of you know two girls a husband you know, just a guy in, in, in that sense. What do I do? Um, write horror, write fantasy, um, write media tie-in stuff. Um, horror is probably my wheelhouse. You know, it's it's my first love. In terms of, of work that I do, I teach full-time at Sinclair Community College, in Dayton, Ohio, teach composition, creative writing, and also teach, as you well know, <laughs> you know, as a, a mentor at Seton Hill University's, you know, wonderful MFA program in writing popular fiction. Yeah, um, he passed me somehow, which to this day still mystifies me. It's because your book was awesome. Oh, thanks. Hopefully one day we'll get to read it. Uh, I got another redraft to do at the end of summer, and like long-time listeners have known that that has been, oh, it's been an emotional journey. So um, the the second question that I've stolen from Better Podcast, uh, which is the other BuzzFeed one, I'm kind of drawing a blank on it. What's wrong with you? (laughs) What isn't wrong with me? (laughs) You know, know, uh, that's a good question, though, because when you write horror... It's a weird, I don't know if this happens to you, but one of the weird things I've found is that people actually want there to be something wrong with you. They like, you know, they want to find out, like, if, like what gives you your ideas or what happened to you to, to make you come up with this kind of stuff. So, and I don't really have an answer to, to that part. Uh, one time I went to a conference in uh, Minneapolis, uh, academic thing, and my, the former chair of my department, English department was with us and we were just wandering around the city and he asked me earlier in the day he said why do you write horror why do you write this kind of stuff because he's a literary guy he couldn't understand it and as we were wandering around the city we walked past a place where there was a banana on the sidewalk we came back and it was in a very different state after like an hour we came we went back it over again and it was a very very different state and then we went back to the lobby of the hotel and we're sitting around and I said remember that question you asked me he goes yeah I said do you see that banana he's like what are you talking about there's this banana, and we went past it like three different times. I said, I can tell you exactly what state it was in each time. And I said, the reason I write this stuff, I see the squashed bananas. And he had no clue what I was talking about. Oh and God. you know what I mean? And yeah. so to people who do this, they understand what that means. It's that you see those things. Mm-hmm. They draw your attention for whatever reason, and they fascinate your imagination. 
So I guess that is maybe not something that's wrong with me, but it kind of answers that question <laughs> people want to know. Like, what's wrong with you to write horror? Yeah. Make your write horror. Well, you, you mentioned that, and yeah. Like, it, it, it's something that people seem to be just naturally drawn to. And I think that, you know, when you're in a sort of – when you're doing writing, when you're in a uh, – like, in the, in the literary world, and I do consider horror liter- literature, especially mm-hmm. really, really fantastic horror um, – yeah, people want an or like I-, I call it the Batman origin story. They want to say, "Oh, I was locked in the closet in the dark while someone was playing The Exorcist outside," and um, you know, and-, and I've seen people who've had this conversation try to parse out bad things that have happened in their life, and everybody really does have a sad story. But yeah, like it's it's that seeing that strange thing, and, and then I guess that that sort of leads into my first question, like ha- like so if horror is an emotion. Obviously, like it, it is a genre pre- predominantly defined by an emotion, whereas something like fantasy or science fiction are based around tropes and expectations. But at the same time, um, the horror genre is extraordinarily tropey to the point where we self-criticize in a way that a lot of other genres don't really seem to. You seldom see that like deconstruction science fiction film. You seldom see that deconstruction fantasy story. Um, how do you reconcile the like the genuine emotion that? kind of comes in and, and maybe this question's a little esoteric but like where is horror being a horror writer about engaging in the tropes and where is it about engaging in the sort of emotions of the veteran play of the genre does that make sense oh, that makes perfect sense i think that tropes work really well if you're trying to reach a wide audience especially an audience that likes stuff that's scary but they'll say not too scary mm-hmm. you know and you get that from just regular readers you know oh, general yeah. readers and probably with movies too and so that's safe the vampire is safe. You know, uh, uh, I talked about that in the work. I did a workshop today, Build a Better Monster, that you were nice enough to come to, you know. And uh, we talked about this idea of once you know the rules, you know, it's safer. And you know how to combat the monster or whatever. Mm-hmm. So if the audience, you know, has a trope that they're comfortable with, um, it helps them deal with the story. And also even just in terms of, of being a consumer, it's like putting the word peas on a can of vegetables. Mm-hmm. You know what you're getting. So people be like, I like haunted house stories. I hate haunted house stories. Like I like growing up, uh, I loved monsters. Have all my life, even before anything bad had ever happened. Just fascinated by the things that were so different. But you know, I didn't like ghosts the stories that much because they weren't monsters. I didn't like witch stories that much. Devil possession stories didn't like them that much. Mm-hmm. I love it all now. You know, as, as I grew up, I love it all. But back then, as a kid, I was like, you know, give me a monster. That's the stuff that, for whatever reasons, you know, sparked my imagination. So I had a trope that was comfortable and I knew that if I came to the story I would enjoy it so much. Mm-hmm. Now this broke for me. Um, you know, it's, it's a bad thing to happen. You know, I had an uncle who was like a second father to me, suddenly passed away, had a heart attack um, when I was nine. Mm-hmm. And and I used to watch the horror, horror movies a lot of times over my relative's house where I'd stay the weekend. So I was watching a horror movie. It was uh, Earth versus a Spider which I now own. Uh, and there's a scene in it where we don't actually see the spider. We see the aftermath. And it's just a small little, I don't know where it's at, like Southern California desert. Yeah, small, desert small little town. Kind of yeah. yeah. And so it's black and white movie, small little town. And it, it, we see the destruction. You know, some cars overturned, busted up buildings or whatever. And then as the camera pans through all this, it focuses on a boy, a little blonde-haired boy with glasses who looks like me. One of his lenses is cracked, and he's crying. Oof. And I understood then that monsters did to people what death had done to me. And they make me feel like this. These characters feel like this. Mm-hmm. And that was the moment where it, you know, I went from 
this is tropey, I love tropey stuff, to clicking into the fact that, no, this is where the story really is. Sure. This is where horror really is. And all those people, even in the 1930s movies where Dracula comes in, you know, and it's like, to our eyes now, you know, hyper-stylized and everything, I mean, these people are actually suffering pain. I mean, they're yeah. suffering trauma. Uh, it doesn't look like it the way they play it out so much, but they are. And so, yeah, I think that they're, I think that probably people who are, who really dive into this, especially as creators, they go, they start off with the tropey stuff, and I think maybe they just, you know, sink beneath it over time as they as they get to know it. Yeah. Well, you actually you you bring up something that's really um, that's really interesting that I, that I hadn't really been able to articulate well. Um, and this goes back to I don't know if you remember this a long time ago. I had expressed in a in a classroom environment sort of my ambivalence toward. Uh, you know, creating horror because I'm, I'm a horror enthusiast. It's as much passion as anything I've ever encountered in my life. But there are people and there are events of real suffering in the world. And sometimes I felt that what I was doing was sort of a weird exploitative thing. And you, you said something that has always worked for me, which is that, you know, we're the dark clowns. Like, oh, ha, 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 look at us. We're all scary and evil with our bloody makeup and stuff. Ignore the Twin Towers burning. Ignore all the horrible things that are going on in the world because this, in some ways, it's a different kind of catharsis. It's so, like, what the French theater, the Grand Guignol, like, mm-hmm. the, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm mangling the French. I apologize to all my French listeners, all three of them. Um, <laughs> but I think that's sort of been something. That, and, and, you know, in talking about creating stuff, especially as a writer, because as writers, I feel we do have to kind of go deeper into the characterization and the victims. And I started out, like, a, I think a lot of kids of the 80s who start out in very formulaic slasher films, and I still hold a very strong love for those characters but as I've gotten older I've kind of realized that you know these dumb teenagers that are wandering off into Jason's campground you know they're the actors are bad the kind of comp the, like the the sort of farcical nature of how the thing is made is it's ridiculous but then I get older and I start thinking oh wait these are kids like I was having a great time and then so this like avatar of annihilation comes into their you know, destroys their lives for stepping, like, stepping into boundaries that only he can, like, only Jason can see. That, like, they didn't do anything wrong. And I think that's, I find in a weird way, horror has made me a lot more empathetic. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, it, and I guess, let's, let's how, how does you, and we're getting a little, like, esoteric and philosophical here. Um, how do you deal with, like, so much horror seems to be tied around death and mortality and the fear of and the sort of, um, the the reconciliation of dying, especially dying through violence or dying through sh- sudden shock, uh, ha- as a creator, is that accurate? Is that how you approach the genre? Like, what do you, what are your feelings toward that? Well, I I think that the simplest horror story that probably was ever told is that something's trying to eat me. You know, and I think that's a real thing for humans. Mm-hmm. Um, for all you know, it could be race memory, could be cultural memory. Um, I talked about this, I think, in the workshop today too, when I was. Uh, at the Cincinnati Zoo once, in like in the area where you just kind of come into it, mm-hmm. they they had at the time a lion that was in a smaller cage, just to be there, like almost like a bird in a bird cage. You know, it's just there for you to see. And we were and people were talking, and the lion was just sitting there, and the lion roared, and everybody froze, <laughs> and I felt a switch flip in the back of my head that had never flipped before, and everybody recognized on a super deep level what that sound was. All of us, and I could actually feel us almost like connect telepathically in a way, like we're all mere, like the meerkats that all look at the same time. Yeah, which humans don't usually do. We don't usually have to. Um, and and so the the predator prey story is a huge one. I mean, if you're on the top of the food chain, there's nothing worse than finding out you're not really. 
Yeah. But it's a simple story, too, and it has a simple outcome. You live or you die. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you're trying to really write strong horror, you want to move past that. So I try not to make my stories about um, life or death. I try not to make them about good or evil. Mm -hmm. Um, I try to make them about, like, something else, whatever, whatever I can think of. Um, often it could be about uh, the world isn't the way you think it is. Uh, people aren't who they think you are sure. or, or you think they are. Um, you're not who you think you are. I mean, it, things that, that, that profoundly disturb your view of your place in the world. Now, Predator and Prey does that you know, because mm-hmm. you're not at the top of the food chain. But I think because it's become such a trope, that if you can just if you can write something that is you know the world is not the way you think um, there's like a uh, Al Yankovic did a uh, I guess they're called shadow parodies yeah. where it's not a literal parody of a song like a Michael Jackson song but it's a song original one he writes in the style of an artist mm-hmm. and so he does one he did one for uh, they might be giants or like imitating their style for a song called everything you know is wrong oh I and, remember that one yeah that and, and it's one. got a real cool video like. Uh, 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 if you look it up, yeah, on YouTube, yeah. If you look it up on YouTube, you know, and you see the the video for it, it just illustrates the the song. It's all it does, and really, it's the whole point is that everything you know is wrong. And if you think about it, that's what the ultimate thing about horror is. It's like you know, you're at the top of the food chain. Nope, um, the dead don't come back. Nope. nope. You know, whatever. Uh, Satan's not real. Yep. You know, so everything, <laughs> whatever, and that's like the ultimate moment. It's not that you die. It's that what you knew was wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think that underlies so much of human experience. You know, as, as, as an, an aware being, you know, it's like, it's really bizarre to find out that things aren't the way you think they are. And it's it's very humbling. Yeah. Uh, and I think you probably come to terms with it a little bit more as you get older. I mean, your body's not what it used to be. <laughs> you know, you understand the human relationships are different maybe than you thought because you're become you're, they're more layered and nuanced because you've mm-hmm. lived through more of them. So I think everything is wrong is a really good way to, at least for me, uh, to try to approach a horror story as opposed to, you know, thinking of a, a particular trope. Mm-hmm. I would start with that and then try to build, like, maybe a new trope. Or if you're using one that's there, try to find a different way that it works into the, you know, everything is wrong. So that's, I mean, that's fantastic advice and, and, and a better sort of understanding of the nuance of the genre beyond, oh, you're alive and now you're not, something's going to kill you, you're dead. Especially since a lot of the best horror stories, the most classic horror stories, involve that sense of the uncanny, the the disturbed. Uh, you know, and before, lest we get too heavy, I also want to talk to, like, I don't know a horror writer that isn't on some level just a small child, like a small boy or a small girl, who doesn't get a little delight in, the, in in playing with monsters in scaring people and I, like let's, so let's go on that what what do you think of the, are the pleasures of creating horror fiction like what's the what's the the way you connect with your audience the way you sort of um kind of find the joy in what you do because it's not like if we're, it's not like we're you know i do think that underneath it all there is a there is a darkness to it and a sort of like human drama and melancholy to it there there is something there that's not all sunshine and rainbows but at the same time it's also so much fun to do i've had so much fun doing this stuff where's the where for you is the joy in creating and talking about and curating and being a part of um horror like the the genre you know i think that the dark clown aspect comes into it on some level too Mm -hmm. there's just this it's almost like if you create an image or it's like you've developed a magic trick you didn't expect. You know, it's like you're playing around and suddenly something so cool happens that you're just delighted. And it, it's cool in a weird way. And sometimes you just can't believe you came up with it. Um, next year at um, StokerCon, it's going to be in Long Beach. 
Uh, and, and I better see you all there. And I know you know who I'm talking to. You, Robert, get your ass out there. <laughs> but uh, George R. R. Martin's going to be like one of the guests. And somebody was talking about him walking around or how scary he was going to be. <laughs> and, you know, I have not watched Game of Thrones. I want to read the books I just first, and I just haven't sure. had a chance to do so. But I know in general from social media, like the big thing about you know, what happened that everybody's like, oh, he's crossed yeah. a line or whatever. And I, and I said, look, George Martin's going to be walking around picking baby fingers out of his beard <laughs> and nibbling on them the whole time, you know, and it just popped into my head. And like you laugh, too, because there's a certain it's like humor in the sense that there's an outrageousness to it. You know, like there's an elasticity to reality in mm-hmm. certain kinds of humor and it's unexpected and it, it and it's pleasurable because if it's outrageous enough, it's safe. Mm-hmm. In the whole history of the human race, has that ever happened? No. Maybe, maybe not, but somebody's done something similar, mm-hmm. and it's, that's not funny. But the funny thing is when you connect all the pieces and you come up with that wacky image. And so for me, that's the, the kind of thing that I just, you know, you giggle maniacally if you're writing a scene like that, <laughs> if you come up with it. Um, I remember I, I did a original novel for Nightmare on Elm Street for Freddy. Yeah, did you really? Yeah, I... yeah it was, it was uh, it's called, um, oh, what the hell is it called? Protégé. Son of a bitch! I yep. did not know that. I would yep. have loved. I ah damn it! You, you can find copies. I'm gonna find They're a copy, there. and you're uh, gonna sign it. Yep. So Please. it was. Uh, it was really cool to do it. It was so much fun. Uh-huh. But because you know, and I tried to go ahead and really get into like what deep down below the images of Freddy is really there mm-hmm. to try to break it scary again. But I also wanted to have fun with it because it's fun. Sure. And so at one point. You know, I wrote, uh, uh, I think Freddie's like in a, in a hot rod or something in the dream world, yeah. uh, I think. And But the phrase I came up with, it, 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 it shot like a meteor, like a sulfurous meteor out of Satan's bunghole, I think is what I wrote. <laughs> you know, it's, I did the same thing because I was like, I can't put that in there. And I'm like, well, hell yes, I am because yeah. it's, it's Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, yeah. it's, it's so there's there's that that part of it is the fun part of it the joy of it mm-hmm. um and, and it is like a magician that does a wacky trick or it's like you know a clown that paints the face and says oh this is gonna the laugh but there's gonna be an edge to it you know yeah so i, I think that's where the fun comes in uh with so i i have to press on this because i didn't know you did a nightmare on elm street book and i have a lot of my fans that are like 80s they're they're my generation they're like 80s or what like this and you nailed freddy better than anybody i've ever seen when you described him as the devil mm-hmm. when you were creating content for freddy freaking Krueger, how did you get into his head what was your perspective on him what were you trying to do that made it uniquely tim like, like tell me about your time writing for freddy well you know, the, like any other media tie-in property, you, you pitch an idea mm-hmm. to the editor at the book company that has the license to do X amount of books for this property. Yeah. Then, once an editor approves it, um, you do like a longer outline, like 10 pages. Mm-hmm. Then that gets sent to the studio. And then somebody at the studio looks at it and says yay or nay or gives you some idea about what to change. And so, a New Line Cinema was taking forever to look at this outline. And so mm-hmm. the editor says, just start writing this book. Well, in my book, the what I was going to have happen was that I was going to have Freddie actually return to life as a human. Mm-hmm. He was going to go after a woman, in the, a young woman in the, the dream uh, world, and actually be pulled through a dream catcher. Like, that's how she gets out. But the dream catcher separates, like, oh. the demonic part of him or whatever from human. So he's human. Yeah. And, of course, once he's human in there, he's so massively confused. You know, the, even though he's an adult, he, male, I mean, the girl can still inflict pain on him. He just rushes out of the house. And then once he's, like, back in the world as a human, he's realizing he kind of likes it. Mm-hmm. And, um, but something takes over his place in the dream realm, and he can't have that. So he wants to yeah. try to get back to it. And the, what took over was his dad, 
because it's supposed he's supposed to be like the bastard son of a thousand maniacs, maniacs yeah. but it was the whatever force was his father took over nice and so the editor loved this new line cinema and so i wrote 60 pages of this book which mm-hmm. i wish i could find the file so i could just because I've had people that find out about it and want to read it. Sure. But I don't know where the file's at. But at any rate, New Line Cinema said, no, we cannot have Freddy become a real person again because that brings up the specter of him being a child molester. And we're really <laughs> trying to downplay that. Yeah. Well, they didn't know that in my mind, I was going to actually have Freddy like hang out just one scene at a playground. But in the years since his death, the kids are all so well-educated in Stranger Danger, they just leave. And that yeah. was it. It was the only thing I was going to do so that it acknowledges that with a wink, kind of, in a way, like they do in the series. Yeah, of course. So that thing got trashed, and I had to start all over with. So what I came up with was that Freddie wanted to, uh, he wants to get back into the real world, have more of an impact on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if people don't believe in him, he gets weaker in the dream world or whatever. Yeah. And so he's, like, trying to find a, a young man who he can exploit to kind of make do the things or, or act as an a, as agent in the world. Sure. In my mind, it was actually, like, after Freddie versus Jason, where you know you see that because in there it's like Freddie needs Jason to mm-hmm. do that. So this was kind of like that. And we all remember how that turned out. That's right. <laughs> so so when I tried to get into to his character, I tried to think about the movies and kind of what I did was I wrote it so that it was like backwards. So it would take like the image of Freddie in the later movies. So I stripped that away and then I had an image that was a little bit darker and more serious and I stripped that away mm-hmm. to try to eventually get to the point where Freddie is just this dark. Thing underneath it all and those other things were various masks mm-hmm. that he used because I wanted to try to make him scary again you know because yeah. like, when I first saw the, the the first Nightmare on Elm Street it was on like VHS I hadn't seen a theater and I literally at one point I turned that damn thing off because it mm-hmm. was creeping me out in my house oh yeah you know and um, and so I did that so I you know I watched the movies and I you know and I wanted to take the the not the myth image but the media image the the trope people you know the one that's the Halloween costume the wisecracking one yeah. that, that was like and then and strip these away bit by bit as the narrative went on so I had a great time doing it um, so kind of jumping back to the main topic wh- so one of the things I love asking people because there is something sort of I don't want to say childish childlike there's a very childlike element to the horror genre like like a lot of us you know, had kind of a morbid streak when we were a kid. Um, and I kind of wanted to ask a, a pair of questions, a little bit of a step back, but this stuff is always interesting to me. Um, what was your relationship to horror as a kid and, like, like to Halloween and to monster movies and to all that stuff? And then what, at what point in your life were you triggered into saying, I want to be a horror creator? Like, like how, what, what's your Batman origin story? Right. Well, you know, I told you about that one experience where my uncle died, but mm-hmm. I was, I loved horror before that. Probably the earliest thing I can remember is my dad reading, like, dinosaur books to me. Mm-hmm. And not fiction, nonfiction, just hero dinosaurs. Sure. I could not read, but I learned to recognize the dinosaurs' names by their shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't explain it anymore because once I learned to read, that went away. Yeah. But I could recognize Stegosaurus by the shape of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love these things. I was fascinated by the idea that they used to be here mm-hmm. and they're gone. And if you think about it, it's like monsters as ghosts, or, or monsters used to be here all the time, and where are they now? Yeah. And so those things just sparked my imagination in all kinds of ways. Um, you know, the greatest template that you can have is the darkness for your imagination, because you can see all kinds of things in it. Um, you know, in the, they say, you know, in the beginning was the dark, and God said, let there be light. Well, God kind of ruined it, for, <laughs> you know, because in the light, things are what they are. You're, there's less room for your imagination. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of us that that the dark and the strange image and the thing we're not sure of, it gives our imaginations room 
Uh, it's almost like water, like finding its way through cracks. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like it goes where it goes, but, you know, it doesn't have anywhere to go if there's no cracks. The water just sits there. Um, and so, and I loved all that stuff. And then I talked about when my uncle died, and I talked about that one movie where I had that realization. Mm-hmm. And I was angry at monsters. I, didn't, I was angry at myself for liking them, uh, not realizing what they were. Mm-hmm. And so, for a while, I kind of stepped away from horror. And then Salem's Lot came out. Uh-huh. Uh, didn't read Carrie, but I had a friend who was trying to explain Salem's Lot to me. You know, I was in junior high, and he's trying to explain to me that there's this place that used to be called Jerusalem's Lot, but now it's Salem's Lot. And I'm like, the hell? It made no sense. <laughs> and I picked this thing up, and when I start reading it, I was like, oh, my God. You know, it, it was the, the real thing. Yeah. The power. Um, you know, it, it, it can't do that for me again because it was a certain time of my life when it hit me. But the absolute power of that story um, just made me fall in love with reading again. Mm-hmm. So I read all kinds of different things. It didn't occur to me to try to write horror. Uh, it took me a while to realize it's because I saw horror as like the highest level for me and I just didn't think I was worthy mm-hmm. of trying to do it um, and then uh, eventually I, I did a little you know I kind of played with some, some short stories here or there when I was like 18, 19 not much came of it just like the novels that didn't they were horrible, you know, nothing came of them. Yeah. And then one day, and I'd I started reading horror again, bit by bit, especially in the explosion of the 80s. It was everywhere. You go into a bookstore, drugstore, uh, whatever, Kmart, because no Walmart around there. Mm-hmm. You know, and there were like literally dozens of horror novels month after month after month. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I started getting intrigued again. Picking God, them all I miss up. those days. Yeah, no kidding. They were yeah. amazing. And it, it, and then, you know, it's I started to think, Oh, I'd like to try this, and then I picked up a Ramsey Campbell short story collection, Alone with the Horrors, and read one after another after another, and I, I got to see how I could write a horror short story that came from like a real place as opposed to a trophy place. Because, mm-hmm. you know, Campbell's story is no tropes. I mean, it's all his own, each story is his own thing. Yeah. And once I saw that, I started writing horror horror short stories again and from there that's when I just and you know when I would write stuff it's horror that people responded the most and it's also weird because it doesn't matter what else I write a lot of people are like oh you're a horror writer it's that thing we talked about before yeah oh that's so cool you write horror and it's like I do other stuff too but you know I love horror so I'm perfectly thrilled to be called a horror writer so I guess that's my origin you know it's like just becoming more and more yourself as time goes by Amen. And it's it's funny the way people react to it. Like there's there's when you tell people you're a horror writer, there are people who like recoil at that and they just really have a hard time getting it. But then I've been telling people who've been asking around the convention, "Oh, what's going on downstairs?" Like like uh, uh we're at the Flamingo and there've been a lot of employees who have asked me, "Hey, what's going on downstairs?" Like, "Oh, it's a horror writer convention." Their face lights up because it's so taboo, it's so transgressive. And I think that's the other thing that horror really appeals is that sort of that naughty the like the the sense of the naughty. I'd love to hear some of you speaking. We've been talking a little bit about I'd love to hear kind of your take on a lot of the both literary and cinematic sort of styles of the genre. Like, what are your thoughts on Lovecraft? What are your thoughts on like the, the Lawrence Block era, Ray Bradbury era, um, the 80s horror bloom, Stephen King, uh, Splatterpunk, which is a, such an interesting one. Um, in terms of the 80s stuff, the slasher movies and the, the, the kind of... Uh, Japanese horror influence style things, the uh, post silence of a lamb slash like like what out there have you engaged with over time? What's really interested you as a creator and as an enthusiast? And what are things that you've had a harder time connecting to? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think is is just starting like out as a young adult or new adult, they could say now, you mm-hmm. know, like eighteen to twenty five or whatever, and then moving on from there to, to where I'm at now at fifty two. The it seems like what I respond to. Are, are, are the, the images that 
and the ideas that aren't as concrete. Mm -hmm. So like like things like the Babadook, it follows. Even though it follows, there's, there are rules to the mm -hmm. to that thing. Um, they're still unknown, uh, and I think that a certain level of the unknown is really powerful. And you don't get—I didn't get that when the movies grown up. I mean, Dracula was very known. Mm -hmm. The Wolfman rule. They all, every movie, you know, the the Universal ones, how they have rules. You know, Frankenstein needs to be, or the Frankenstein's monster, needs to be recharged every once in a while. Mm -hmm. uh, if he goes dormant, you have to find a way to charge him. Some other damn scientist is going to be stupid enough to charge him up, you know. And so, you know what I mean? And so everything had rules. And those things were super cool, but they didn't, like, threaten um, your view of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, finding out there was a wolf man in the world, as a kid, it's, it's like finding out there's a zebra. I mean, zebras have rules. Mm -hmm. You know, you know how they work and how they don't work. They don't fly. They don't, they don't breathe underwater. Um, so it, it, even if it's a supernatural element to them, um, so I loved them as kids, but as I got older, they ceased being something that worked really well for me. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and then like 30 days a night comes out, the vampires are just, you know, even though they can plot and think they're like ravening, just beasts mm -hmm. again. Um, uh, the new trope, like, uh, uh, the Romero zombies, Romero's one of the people getting the lifetime achievement award from the horror writers association tonight. And for, for doing something that nobody in the 20th century is really, Lovecraft did, but probably nobody else has done so well is to create a whole new trope. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and not just the flesh-eating zombie, but the flesh-eating zombie apocalypse. And then it can be transmitted, and, I mean, a trope that will probably live forever, just like vampires and werewolves. Mm -hmm. uh, it's amazing. that. So I, I think that, that for me, in terms of all the different, you know, uh, approaches, that anything that has that kind of element of a distortion of reality, um, it can even just be mental distortion. Um, one of the great things about Psycho is that uh, at the end, you know, Simon Oakland is like this out of nowhere. He's it's only part where he's the psychologist that's going to explain Norman, <laughs> and he comes out and explains it. And I, I got to see this movie in um, in a film appreciation class in college, and. The professor says, you know, you notice how it comes out and it falls flat. Mm -hmm. He said that's because Hitchcock's saying, you, in the next image is, of course, of Norman's face. He's, the, the, what is, you can't explain this. Go right ahead and try. Go ahead, science. You can't explain this. Mm -hmm. And, even, and it's, just, it's human. I mean, there's no supernatural stuff to it. But it still has that same distortion. And again, like threatening what we think, you know, uh, uh, it's reality. Like if it's like, a, if it's like a Tower of Lincoln logs, you know, it's pulling the bottom, one of the bottom ones. Yeah. You know, so anything that does that, I think, works really, really well. I don't, I don't care what genre it is. Mm -hmm. I do love some of the, the, like now people are looking back to the '80s and they're in their some of their stories and they're finding ways to, to either deconstruct but at the same time like put a real emotional core. Mm -hmm. The movie that came out not too long ago is Final Girls uh, with an that. S. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just I, I thought this is going to be a lot of fun, and I start watching it and I'm like holy crap, look at them build this emotional core. You know, it's step by step by step through this movie that is still fun mm -hmm. and still funny and still deconstructive, but it has a real strong emotional core to it. And uh, kind of like Shaun of the Dead does too. You know, it's, it's deconstructing, reconstructing, putting two different genres together, but there is an actual honest-to-God emotional core and the characters matter and the relationships matter which you didn't think would happen. Yeah, it's not witty. It's not witty for the sake of just being witty or like snot. Like I found some of those deconstructing films sort of snotty where they're just like, "No, oh, we have it all figured out. This is how we're going to riff on it." But you're right. I think that's like that those movies I, I loved Final Girl so much. Again, probably because like I have this probably unhealthy fixation on the Friday the 13th films and those movies and Final Girls directly riffs on that, but it's also a beautiful story about losing a parent 
losing, you know, and especially like a daughter's love for her mother and seeing it like recaptured in the film and like in this place where she will be immortal and will be remembered forever, I thought was really touching. And uh, I think there's been a lot of interesting movies lately about mother-child related. The Babadook you mentioned, obviously, mm-hmm. fantastic film. Um, so the next question I want to get into is your own work. Um, you've written 30 novels bunch of stuff. I have a bunch of um, you've read tied in, tie-in stuff. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the development of your own work, uh, particular novels in your career that you've written that you really treasure or you see as really important to your development, um, what your experience has been writing tie-in novels, things like that. Like, like I, I, you know, if we contain little pieces of ourselves in our artwork, like uh, what's your sort of Picasso blue period? What's your um, what are what are the themes that you revisited constantly? Things like that. Like like l- let's talk a little bit about your books and the things that you've come to really you've learned about yourself and you've come to treasure from them. Well, like I said earlier, I started writing short fiction. I mean, I've been do- writing short fiction all along, but I started writing a certain kind of short fiction after reading Alone with the Horrors mm-hmm. and trying to find you know my way to do it. I started well, trying to come up with. Um, uh, what are the things I'm interested in or obsessed with or that strike me? I actually spent, it was like a, a, a period of time where I was only teaching. Actually, I wasn't teaching at all. My wife had a full-time job, and I had, I had a full-time job before that and went away. And so, like, for one semester, I was a full-time writer. Mm-hmm. And what I did was, and I realized my work was just recycling other people's ideas. So I spent every day walking around with a handheld tape recorder talking about everything about my past, about my thoughts, my feelings, anything that I could try to dig into the, the material that was just mine. Mm-hmm. And then I started bit by bit writing short stories that focused on things that I would see or, or elements from my own life. And I found that if I could take uh, <coughs> elements that, like crafted experiences or emotions, real things, like I would just pull it out of my life and then work it and distort it to a certain level, I would get fiction that I felt connected to that had an emotional core that worked pretty well. Um, and then after that, uh, I decided to go, it was time to try, once I started having success with short stories like this. Mm-hmm. and started selling them. Started selling stories to cemetery dance, you know, in places. I knew I was doing pretty well mm-hmm. in terms of finding what I was looking for. And then I decided it was time to try a novel with this approach. And I wrote a novel called The Harmony Society, which uh, was published by a small press years ago. It's come back out again. I mean, you could find it in ebook. Just go to Amazon. But it's the first time where I started using... Um, the same elements I used in short fiction at novel length, and I figured out a way to make them work. And it's also, in a lot of ways, heavily biographical, only in the sense like the character lived in the same apartment complex that I lived in, uh, taught at basically the same kind of school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, I just add other things that are unreal to that. But grounding it enough in real reality for me helped me do that. So the Harmony Society is like one of those watershed moments mm-hmm. where it was the time that I wrote something you know, that, that I knew was a novel that was mine. Um, and so then I kept it up. I did three novels for leisure books, Like Death and Pandora Drive and Darkness Wakes, all of which are available as, as e-books now, mm-hmm. uh, if anybody wants to check them out. But all three of those were the same. I was working with the same kind of, of style. And it was very, I guess what a lot of people these days, as near as I can tell, when people try to label types of horror, I guess the closest label I've seen now is what's called nightmare horror, mm-hmm. where it's more like, it happens in the real world, but it, it is like a nightmare. Um, not that in the sense of anything can happen, it's super surreal, but there's enough of that that goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, a friend of mine, a poet that I teach with, said that my work has the logic of the image. And so, Ooh. yeah, so it's like... Poets would say shit like that, wouldn't they? Yeah, it's true. 
<laughs> but but it's but it is true, you know. Um, and so I, I'll work with a central image like that. And then as the years go by, you know, I, I've branched out. I mean, horror in general is a market. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it tanked in the '80s. It came back a little bit in the '90s and early 2000s or whatever. It tanked again. You know, in terms of mass market. Um, so I try all kinds of stuff. I would try doing like urban fantasy that's like horror tinged, but it's almost like going back to the childlike part, mm-hmm. the stuff that I enjoyed. So I did an urban fantasy series called Necropolis, about a zombie PI working in a city of monsters mm-hmm. in another dimension. And that those books, there's three of them, uh, Necropolis, Dead Streets, and Dark War. They're my love letter to my childhood. Mm-hmm. That's filled with every monster I loved and everything I can think of to put in there. And I had so much fun writing them. Uh, they're they're and they're very, but I still tried to like put in stuff that was like my other horror kind of, mm-hmm. um, but it's more like Adam's Family type of you know like the movie Adam's Family. Yeah, yeah. So you know, so it's it's dark, but you know, and not in the sense of you know you take it seriously. Mm-hmm. That like like maybe a Jack Ketchum story that's going to tear your soul out. You know, when you, <laughs> you know what I mean? That 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 you read. And then so the media tie-in stuff, sometimes it was just like curiosity. You know, you'd hear, like you see on a message board somewhere or whatever, it's like, oh, Wizards of the Coast, are, they're opening up submissions again. Or, you know, you meet somebody at a conference who writes this. Or they, and they talk, they would talk about the process of how they did it. And I'd just be curious, you know, could I do it? And so I'd approach somebody and try, and sometimes it would work out and sometimes it wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you, and every once in a while you fall into things. Like you may have pitched something to an editor and they don't have anything now for you, but suddenly they need somebody to do a book because the person dropped out and mm-hmm. the deadline's tight. And like, can you do, do that? And you're like, sure, I'll write you a supernatural novel, whatever. I love supernatural. I'd love to do one. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, sometimes it works out like that too. So that's just kind of more of a, of a like people's normal kind of employment journey. You know, like throughout your career, you may not be sure where that will go. Yeah. It's not like you have a chart, the, the course that's charted, right? Mm-hmm. So the media tie-in work's been kind of like that. I actually wanted to um, ask a little bit about your Supernatural books, because I've read them all. I've really enjoyed them. And uh, what one of the things that's always interested me about Supernatural, the show, also, yes, I'm going to hashtag the shit out of it, because it's going to get me so many more listens on this thing. But um, one of the things that really strikes me about the show is you're a Midwestern writer, right? You're from Ohio. Um, the Supernatural TV series takes place a lot in the Midwest and in in, um, in in places that aren't typically seen in horror fiction. Um, how did you approach the stories from that angle and sort of from that, like, in, in sort of studying that sensibility of the show and making it your own for the tie-in novels? Well, that part's easy because I just said it like in Ohio. You know, <laughs> you know, a lot of my novels I just set like where I grew up and where yeah. I've lived most of my life in southwestern Ohio. And then if I need to go ahead and not, like, if I'm writing a second Supernatural book, um, all I do then is it's like, oh, yeah, this one's in Illinois or this one's in Indiana. You know, mm-hmm. it's close enough places I've been that are close enough to where I've lived. Um, I find that that whole Midwestern thing fascinating. It's like these guys won't get on an airplane. Mm. I don't really know why. I mean, typically. Well, they mention in one of the episodes that um, I want to say Dean is afraid of flying. And he gets on a plane. And of course, the plane, someone's possessed. The plane's going to crash the whole thing. It's very, very supernaturally. Yeah, I remember that. But still, I mean, you know, these guys deal with trying to save the world. And it's like, seriously, you're going to take eight hours to get there to save the world instead of hopping your ass on a plane? <laughs> you know, you wouldn't, even if you hate it. I mean, Dean would do it. because to say, But, you know, it doesn't go with the vibe of the show. Yeah. You know, and so, and they don't, they never go into cities. 
I mean, they went to the one like backdoor pilot episode in Chicago where there's like warring monster families, mm. you know, and it was great because they're like, well, good luck solving the problems here in Chicago, guys. And they leave. And That's it's like, funny. seriously, there's like how many monsters here? They have like a network uh. and you're going to go back out into like some ditch somewhere. And you're going to kill, like, a monster that's, like, killed, like, three people? You, you wouldn't do that. You would, like, stay and you get an army of hunters to battle everything and clean out Chicago. Mm-hmm. Then you'd move to New York. It's just not the vibe of the series. Yeah. And so so one of the things that I imagine, in like, when I write Supernatural is, and I've done, like, three books, uh, two, two adventures for uh, Titan Books, and then uh, actually Choose Your Own Adventure from Eclipse Editions, which is cool because I got to kill off Sam and Dean in all kinds of ways <laughs> in, the, in the bad paths, you know, yeah. the bad choices. But one of the things I try to imagine is that the monsters and these entities, they hide away in the, these, these cracks and crevices of the world to hiding from hunters and to hide from humanity. Mm-hmm. So in my mind, they wouldn't be in Chicago and they wouldn't have, you know, like the monster families and everything. It's too, it's too out there to be found too mm-hmm. easily, especially after centuries or millennia of hunters going after these things. You know, at one point in the series, they thought vampires were extinct, you mm-hmm. know, and then they found out they weren't. Um, so that helps a lot, too, because that, that goes into the Midwestern vibe. We're, we're searching for the, in the back roads for the places where these things are hiding. Um, and then plus, you know, it, it, I think in a lot of ways, they're going for the Wild West vibe. You, know, mm-hmm. you ride into town on your horse. You know, it's a small town. What's threatening the small town and the people that are there? And nobody knows. I mean, I talk all the time about redressing tropes mm-hmm. so that people don't realize that's what you're doing. But you know, I, th- I think that's what it is in a lot of ways. You know, these guys are like the Lone Ranger in Tonto or whatever. I mean, you know, they're, they're riding from town to town and they're encountering, you know, whatever threat the town would be. And then they ride out again at the end. Yeah, you're right. It always did strike me as like a very American kind of show. And I think that's what it, that that's what always works so well. Uh, with me for it, and I, and I really dig it. Um, so I kind of wanted to go into your experiences as a teacher. I first met you. Uh, you were my academic, my original academic advisor for Seton Hill, where I, and I remember the first real conversation we had was I was sitting down talking about my book of like three Japanese girls coming to America trying to escape their past, but their dead friend they accidentally killed followed them, and um, you were receptive to that idea, which was incredibly. Um, affirming to me, like to hear, I, I think that culturally we're taught, um, and we're getting kind of into bigger creative stuff. Um, culturally, we're sort of taught that creativity is a frivolous or childlike endeavor. And when you have an idea that you're really passionate about, I, I've noticed a lot of writers sort of conceal it. And in my own life, when I'm running like workshops or whatever in my neighborhood, I always encourage people to own and take pride in things that they care about enough to create and to see through to the end. Um, so I've seen you on the grad school level. You also teach um, you know, commu- uh, colleges, like undergrad. And you uh, were t- uh, I've seen you teach a seminar and then host another seminar at this panel. Um, what have you learned from being a teacher? What have you noticed in students? What, um, what like, quick general things? W- what do you say to inspire people? What do you say for young writers to be cautious of? Um, just, you know, summarize your entire professional career as a teacher in like, uh, you know, 10-ish minutes. So go. Uh, that's, a, that's, <laughs> that's not a tall order. You know, I was talking with, a, you know, a mutual friend of ours, John Dixon. Mm-hmm. Um, wonderful writer. Wonderful writer. Read his books. Yep. Check him out on Amazon. Um, and he's a former teacher, you know, as well. Uh, and one of the, and I was his mentor at Seton Hill, just as I was yours. And one of the things he was talking about is that, that, that I did this for him and I did it for you too to hear you talk about it is that one of the things the, 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 the most profound thing a teacher can do is the simplest which is to give you permission 
you know, to let you know that it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay to think these things. It's okay to write these things or whatever to, you know, you want to, you want to paint. It's okay to do that. And, and a lot of times you may not get that from people in your life. Um, and even if people in your life would do it, there's always the, but these people love me, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like my former mother-in-law, um, every, if anything, anybody she loves does is fabulous and amazing. Mm-hmm. And my ex was like, I never showed her anything because it didn't matter. Anything I showed her, like a school report or something creative she might have done, it was fabulous. And I knew that she would always say that. Therefore, I couldn't trust her feedback. Mm-hmm. My dad, everything was just okay. <laughs> it's, it's, so if I show him something, it, yeah, it's okay. And I wouldn't get anything more than that. So mm-hmm. I didn't trust his feedback. But you have somebody who's a complete stranger who has no reason whatsoever to validate you know, your thoughts or your feelings or your ideas. And if a teacher can just do that, just to make a space where it is possible for somebody to explore in a safe way, mm-hmm. um, that's it. It's almost like all, all the, if you can just say, yes, it's okay, then you get the hell out of the way mm-hmm. and let people have room to explore. And as they're doing it, you can go ahead and say, well, maybe you should try this. Or you wait, they come to you and you say, okay, well, maybe you should do this. Or no, it looks pretty good. Keep on going. And a lot of it is in a way, I mean, I don't mean this to be insulting at all, but I, I learned as a parent that it's a, very similar that you have the people teach themselves they develop on their own and they check in when they need you or if they're not sure and you see that they do you could step in but you sure as hell better step back again too mm-hmm. so and, and, and brand new teachers uh, a lot of times they over prepare mm-hmm. it's like or they mistake their profession for their creative outlet i get this with my colleagues who i hope nobody will listen to <laughs> at, at, not at seton hill never but it, where i teach normally yeah and a lot of times they'll have these massively elaborate syllabi and massively elaborate exercises because this is their creative outlet mm-hmm. and you know students are perplexed by it they can't get through it you know they feel like it's just weighty mm-hmm. it's a burden and it's like you don't need that you know you need to just create an environment where this can happen whatever it is and you know, do your thing in terms of giving feedback, letting people explore, stepping in when you need to, but giving space for the people mm-hmm. to do it. So really, you you are more of a guide. I mean, the the, men, the idea of mentor is a better one in a lot of ways than the idea of teacher. Teacher is almost like programmer. A lot of people think of it that way. And if you try to program a person, you are not doing them any favors. I don't care if you do program them to do exactly what you want. I mean, you're not helping them. You're not helping them grow. You're not helping them allowing them to be themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what advice would you give both to uh, people who are really passionate about creative writing and people who want to teach creative writing? Well, you know, I usually say that to my mind, there's like three stages. Uh, there's the ability to do an art, whatever it may be. So we'll just say write. But it could be anything. Sure. So it's the ability to write. And then the next stage is the ability to understand how you write mm-hmm. and how writing is made. The third thing is the ability to communicate that understanding to other people while not trying to enforce your particular way of doing it on other people. And so it can be, it's really hard to go through, to have all three of those things, especially when you're just starting out as as a teacher. You know, I mean, you may be in your 20s, you could do workshops anytime or even giving feedback to people, you know, in a group, you're in a teaching situation, a mutual teaching situation, but you're there. So I think that that, uh, the advice I would give people is to try your best to to grow those things, those aspects in yourself, Mm -hmm. to start trying to, you know, to to become the very best writer or whatever you can be, and then to develop as much of an understanding as you can of your own process. Process, talking to other writers. You know, I would read tons of interviews with writers and writing teachers to get a better understanding. And then keep working on finding ways to articulate this understanding to others. 
and without forcing a particular way of doing something on people. And so I get, if you can go through those three steps, I think that, and you may take a lifetime to work through them, but I think that whatever it is you're trying to teach, I don't care if you're trying to teach somebody how to weight lift or whatever. I mean, if you can do all, go through all three of those things, I think you'd be a real effective teacher. Um, in terms of advice I would give to, to, to people, um, you know, a lot of beginning writers, um, they see writing as just playtime and they are so excited, but they resist this idea that, yeah, but it's also work and it's also an art. It's also a craft. And there's a lot of people that came before you that did a lot of research and development on stuff. Mm-hmm. Like here's a good way to set up dialogue on the page. So most people recognize it as dialogue. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean you can't do it a different way and explore, but there's something to be said for the, the fact that people, you know, they invented the wheel for you. Mm-hmm. If you want to invent like a square wheel, go ahead. But you should know that the round wheels work pretty well and why before you invent your square one. Um, I had a student this semester who I hope last semester just ended that I hope doesn't hear this. But on like on the very first day of class, she'd read or second or third. She'd read the introductory essay in the textbook, which, of course, said writers have to read. And she's like, I really resent the idea that people tell me I have to read. You shouldn't have to read to be able to write. Now, she's an excellent writer, as I found out as the semester went on. She reads on her own. Uh, but she means like that you must. Like it's the only way to produce art, mm-hmm. uh, written art. And it's not. But in general, though, it's like being somebody who cooks but can't taste anything. Yeah. I mean, you could learn. Well, they, they had a scene like that in Winter Soldier, you know, or the visions like, you know, trying to cook food. But he's like, you know, in all fairness, I've never eaten anything. <laughs> so, you know, he really can't finesse you know the art of it there's no way he's only gonna be following instructions like a machine as best he can uh, if he can't learn taste even if he's like a sentient being or whatever um so i so i tell people that um you know one of the things you want to do is you want to be able to read really well um just keep reading uh read the kind of thing you want to write but read other stuff too and then I, i try to tell people that uh we talked about this a little bit in one of the panels today about creating believable characters and one of the things I was moderating, and I asked people, what's one of the things that makes a character unbelievable for you? One of the things for me is when people don't uh, have emotional reactions or just reactions to stuff that happens in a story, especially like horror, science fiction, and fantasy. You have characters that experience all kinds of stuff that you know, they should have a reaction to, like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is true. At least Lovecraft would do that, like, at the end, even like with early tales, and then, oh, my God, I'm going insane, you know, and it'd be, it'd be italicized <laughs> at the end, too. You know, and you can laugh at it, but at least these characters are having a reaction to, to what's happening. And I see this a lot in student manuscripts, you know, new students, new writers, mm-hmm. uh, more at the undergrad level than the grad level, but their characters don't have any emotional reactions to the things that are going on. Um, the other thing I would tell people to do is to try to learn to write with a more immersive point of view. Um, you know, I, I show people a, a video clip in class of like uh, just one of the battles from one of the Bourne movies. Mm-hmm. And I ask him whose point of view it's from. And eventually somebody says the audience's because we aren't in Bourne's head. Mm-hmm. We don't even see him the whole time in this one clip I show. Sometimes we see the woman who's in distress, sometimes the bad guys. Uh, so then I show them a clip from the same people that just did the movie um, Hardcore Henry. Oh, which yeah. is a point of view. I mean, it's all from the point of view of the character. Um, and there's a, it's a video on YouTube. Uh, it's I don't know if the video is called this or it's to the song, but if you search "bad motherfucker" because that's the because <laughs> that's the tune, you know, yeah, yeah. in it. And it's all from this character's point of view. And I say I show them this, and I say whose point of view is that from? And they say that's from a spy. It's like a James Bond character in that video. Mm-hmm. And I say that's what you imagine when you when you uh, write. Everybody imagines 
being an audience member watching at first because most even if they read a bunch they're mostly watching tvs watching uh, tv shows watching movies as a passive audience member mm-hmm. i say no you need to imagine that this is happening to you you are this person having these thoughts having these feelings having these physical reactions to what you're doing all of that stuff and it usually helps a lot uh, yeah. just that kind of that, that shift from being an observer to i am doing this um i think people who act uh, they do have any kind of theater experience, acting experience. They get that because they inhabit this character on the stage. And so they kind of naturally will start doing that when they write. Uh, yeah, and I, I I couldn't word it any better. And it's interesting, too, because I've been – so I just got this collection of classic horror tales, and I'm rereading, um, you know, the, the, the roots of the genre, trying to get as, like, broad a – language of it as possible and when you i'm reading uh balzac's the elixir of life and the way that it's so it's a it's a story of you know wrong resurrections and things like that but there's something in classical literature that's so distancing it's really interesting until you start seeing the epistolary novels of like dracula or like the the mania of of frankenstein or whatever but anyway tangent city um so we are about done here i wanted to thank you for coming up now this part of the show i always ask what are you up to now what are you what are you working on what's about to come out what are you uh excited about uh both in your own work or in other people's work like what do you want to what do you want to the audience to know about what you're up to or what you're into well i'm uh things that are coming out i have my third supernatural novel it's called Mythmaker. Sam and Dean deal with like an infestation of gods, brand new gods being born in a town. Mm-hmm. That's coming out in July. I have an original novel uh, coming out from Dark Fuse Publishing called Eat the Night, which is kind of a, it's one of my nightmare horror stories of the type I talked about before. It's like a combination of like a, uh, a, an aging rock star and like the James Jamestown massacre. Ooh, that uh, I mean, good. I, I made, made it my own, but I mean, yeah. as, uh, it, so that's coming out. Um, what I'm working on now is uh, uh, I'm doing the novelization of Resident Evil, the final chapter, the last movie. Theoretically, we'll see. You know, the last movie in the <laughs> franchise. The movie's going to come out in January. Uh, at the same time, the novel's going to come out. But I'm working on that one right now. Uh, and other than that, you know, a bunch of short stories and a million proposals out there to different editors and you know we'll see what happens good for you man um anyway i want first off thanks for taking an hour off the convention floor to hang out and talk horror with a former student and and a friend and uh thanks for letting me crash in your hotel room i still owe you a steak um hey i hope you guys really enjoyed this uh we're still at the stoker con if you're a creator if you're if you want to be a part of the horror community which is a wonderful community of weirdos uh come check it out next year it's going to be in long beach uh, at the Queen Mary, I want to say. Mm-hmm. I will be listening to so much Dr. Dre the Chronic there. It's going to be just like a blast. So anyway, uh, to all the CreatureCast fans, thank you so much for joining us. Do you have a website or a portal where people can uh, find you? Yeah, you can just find me at timwagoner.com. Wagoner is spelled W-A-G-G-O-N-E-R. Uh, my Facebook profile is public, so even if you don't friend me, you can still like see anything you know, or message me. Um, you know, I have email links on my website if anybody has any questions about writing writing horror whatever publishing you are welcome to contact me uh, i mean we, our genre we believe in paying it forward i'm happy to help anybody so you hear that that is the mark of an artist guys so um hey thanks again i hope you guys have a wonderful start of your summer and from las vegas i'm out peace creature cast a darkly tinted look the magical the mysterious and the macabre